Chapter 38, Part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The allegiance of his brother was already seduced, and the obedience of Godzigil, who joined the royal standard with the troops of Geneva, more effectually promoted the success of the conspiracy. While the Franks and Burgundians contended with equal valor, his seasonable desertion decided the event of the battle, and as Gundibald was faintly supported by the disaffected Gauls, he yielded to the arms of Clovis, and hastily retreated from the field, which appears to have been situated between Langres and Dijon. He distrusted the strength of Dijon, a quadrangular fortress encompassed by two rivers and a wall thirty feet high and fifteen thick, with four gates and thirty-three towers. He abandoned to the pursuit of Clovis the important cities of Lyon and Vienne, and Gundebalt still fled with precipitation till he had reached Avignon, at the distance of two hundred and fifty miles from the field of battle. A long siege and an artful negotiation admonished the king of the Franks of the danger and difficulty of his enterprise. He imposed a tribute on the Burgundian prince, compelled him to pardon and reward his brother's treachery, and proudly returned to his own dominions with the spoils and captives of the southern provinces. This splendid triumph was soon clouded by the intelligence that Gundebald had violated his recent obligations, and that the unfortunate Godzigil, who was left at Vienne with a garrison of five thousand francs, had been besieged, surprised, and massacred by his inhuman brother. Such an outrage might have exasperated the patience of the most peaceful sovereign, yet the conqueror of Gaul dissembled the injury released the tribute, and accepted the alliance and military servants of the king of Burgundy. Clovis no longer possessed those advantages which had assured the success of the preceding war, and his rival, instructed by adversity, had found new resources in the affections of his people. The Gauls, or Romans, applauded the mild and impartial laws of Gundobald, which almost raised them to the same level with their conquerors. The bishops were reconciled and flattered by the hopes which he artfully suggested of his approaching conversion, and though he eluded their accomplishment to the last moment of his life, his moderation secured the peace and suspended the ruin of the kingdom of Burgundy. I am impatient to pursue the final ruin of that kingdom, which was accomplished under the reign of Sigismund, the son of Gundobald. The Catholic Sigismund had acquired the honors of a saint and martyr but the hands of the royal saint were stained with the blood of his innocent son, whom he inhumanly sacrificed to the pride and resentment of a stepmother. He soon discovered his heir and bewailed the irreparable loss. While Sigismund embraced the corpse of the unfortunate youth, he received a severe admonition from one of his attendants. It is not his situation, O king. It is thine which deserves pity and lamentation. The reproaches of a guilty conscience were alleviated, however, by his liberal donations to the monastery of Agunum, or St. Maurice, in Valais, which he himself had founded in honor of the imaginary martyrs of the Thebian legion. A full chorus of perpetual psalmody was instituted by the pious king. He assiduously practiced the austere devotion of the monks, and it was his humble prayer that heaven would inflict in this world the punishment of his sins. His prayer was heard, the avengers were at hand, and the provinces of Burgundy were overwhelmed by an army of victorious Franks. After the event of an unsuccessful battle, Sigismund, who wished to protract his life that he might prolong his penance, concealed himself in the desert 
in a religious habit till he was discovered and betrayed by his subjects, who solicited the favor of their new masters. The captive monarch, with his wife and two children, were transported to Orléans, and buried alive in a deep well by the stern command of the sons of Clovis, whose cruelty might derive some excuse from the maxims and examples of the barbarous age. Their ambition, which urged them to achieve the conquest of Burgundy, was inflamed or disguised by filial piety, and Clotilda, whose sanctity did not consist in the forgiveness of injuries, pressed them to revenge her father's death on the family of his assassin. The rebellious Burgundians, for they had attempted to break their chains, were still permitted to enjoy their national laws under the obligations of tribute and military service, and the Merovingian princes peacefully reigned over a kingdom whose glory and greatness had first been overthrown by the arms of Clovis. The first victories of Clovis had insulted the honor of the Goths. They viewed his rapid progress with jealousy and terror, and the youthful fame of Alaric was oppressed by the more potent genius of his rival. Some disputes inevitably arose on the edge of their contiguous dominions, and after the delays of fruitless negotiation, a personal interview of the two kings was proposed and accepted. The conference of Clovis and Alaric was held in a small island of the Loire, near Amboise. They embraced, familiarly conversed, and feasted together, and separated with the warmest professions of peace and brotherly love. But their apparent confidence concealed a dark suspicion of hostile and treacherous designs, and their mutual complaints solicited, eluded, and disclaimed a final arbitration. At Paris, which he had already considered as his royal seat, Clovis declared to an assembly of the princes and warriors the pretense and the motive of a Gothic war. It grieves me to see that the Arians still possess the fairest portion of Gaul. Let us march against them with the aid of God, and having vanquished the heretics, we will possess and defy their fertile provinces. The Franks, who were inspired by hereditary valor and recent zeal, applauded the generous design of their monarch, expressed their resolution to conquer or die, since death and conquest would be equally profitable, and solemnly protested that they would never shave their beards till victory should absolve them from that inconvenient vow. The enterprise was promoted by the public or private exhortations of Clotilda. She reminded her husband how effectually some pious foundation would propitiate the deity and his servants, and the Christian hero, darting his battle-axe with a skillful and nervous hand. There, said he, on that spot where my Francisca shall fall, will I erect a church in honor of the holy apostles. This ostentatious piety confirmed and justified the attachment of the Catholics, with whom he secretly corresponded, and their devout wishes were gradually ripened into a formidable conspiracy. The people of Aquitaine was alarmed by the indiscreet reproaches of the Gothic tyrants, who justly accused them of preferring the dominion of the Franks. And their zealous adherent, Quintianus, bishop of Rodez, preached more forcibly in his exile than in his diocese. To resist these foreign and domestic enemies, who were fortified by the alliance of the Burgundians, Alaric collected his troops, far more numerous than the military powers of Clovis. The Visigoths resumed the exercise of arms, which they had neglected in a long and luxurious peace. A select band of valiant and robust slaves attended their masters to the field, and the cities of Gaul were compelled to furnish their doubtful and reluctant aid. Theodoric, king of the Ostrogoths, who reigned in Italy, had labored to maintain the tranquility of Gaul, and he assumed, or affected for that purpose, the impartial character of a mediator. But the sagacious monarch dreaded the rising empire of Clovis, 
and he was firmly engaged to support the national and religious cause of the Goths. The accidental or artificial prodigies which adorned the expedition of Clovis were accepted by a superstitious age as the manifest declaration of the divine favor. He marched from Paris, and as he proceeded with decent reverence through the holy dioceses of Tours, his anxiety tempted him to consult the shrine of St. Martin, the sanctuary and the oracle of Gaul. His messengers were instructed to remark the words of the psalm, which had happened to be chanted at the precise moment when they entered the church. Those words most fortunately expressed the valor and the victory of the champions of heaven, and the application was easily transferred to the new Joshua, the new Gideon, who went forth to battle against the enemies of the Lord. Orléans secured to the Franks a bridge on the Loire, but at the distance of forty miles from Poitiers, their progress was intercepted by an extraordinary swell of the river Vigena, or Vienne, and the opposite banks were covered by the encampment of the Visigoths. Delay must always be dangerous to barbarians, who consume the country through which they march, and had Clovis possessed leisure and materials, it might have been impracticable to construct a bridge or to force a passage in the face of a superior enemy. But the affectionate peasants, who were impatient to welcome the deliverer, could easily betray some unknown or unguarded ford. The merit of the discovery was enhanced by the useful interposition of fraud or fiction, and a white heart of singular size and beauty appeared to guide and animate the march of the Catholic army. The councils of the Visigoths were irresolute and distracted. A crowd of impatient warriors, presumptuous in their strength and disdaining to fly before the robbers of Germany, excited Alaric to assert in arms the name and blood of the conqueror of Rome. The advice of the graver chieftains pressed him to elude the first ardor of the Franks, and to expect, in the southern provinces of Gaul, the veteran and victorious Ostrogoths, whom the king of Italy had already sent to his assistance. The decisive moments were wasted in idle deliberation, and the Goths too hastily abandoned, perhaps, an advantageous post, and the opportunity of a secure retreat was lost by their slow and disorderly motions. After Clovis had passed the ford, as it is still named, of the heart, he advanced with bold and hasty steps to prevent the escape of the enemy. His nocturnal march was directed by a flaming meteor suspended in the air above the cathedral portier, and this signal, which might be previously concerted with the orthodox successor of St. Hilary, was compared to the column of fire that guided the Israelites in the desert. At the third hour of the day, about ten miles beyond Poitiers, Clovis overtook and instantly attacked the Gothic army, whose defeat was already prepared by terror and confusion. Yet they rallied in their extreme distress, and the martial youths, who had clamorously demanded the battle, refused to survive the ignominy of flight. The two kings encountered each other in single combat. Alaric fell by the hand of his rival, and the victorious Frank was saved, by the goodness of his cuirass and the vigor of his horse, from the spears of two desperate Goths, who furiously rode against him to revenge the death of their sovereign. The vague expression of a mountain of the slain serves to indicate a cruel, though indefinite, slaughter. But Gregory has carefully observed that his valiant countryman, Apollinarius, the son of Sidonius, lost his life at the head of the nobles of Avernia. Perhaps these suspected Catholics had been maliciously exposed to the blind assault of the enemy, and perhaps the influence of religion was superseded by personal attachment or military honor. Such is the empire of fortune, if we may still disguise our ignorance under that popular name, 
that it is almost equally difficult to foresee the events of war or to explain their various consequences. A bloody and complete victory has sometimes yielded no more than the possession of the field, and the loss of ten thousand men has sometimes been sufficient to destroy in a single day the work of ages. The decisive battle of Portier was followed by the conquest of Aquitaine. Alaric had left behind him an infant son, a bastard competitor, factious nobles, and a disloyal people, and the remaining forces of the Goths were oppressed by the general consternation, or opposed to each other in civil discord. The victorious king of the Franks proceeded without delay to the siege of Angoulême. At the sound of his trumpets, the walls of the city imitated the example of Jericho, and instantly fell to the ground, a splendid miracle which may be reduced to the supposition that some clerical engineers had secretly undermined the foundations of the rampart. At Bordeaux, which submitted without resistance, Clovis established his winter quarters, and his prudent economy transported from Toulouse the royal treasuries, which were deposited in the capital of the monarchy. The conqueror penetrated as far as the confines of Spain, restored the honors of the Catholic Church, fixed in Aquitaine a colony of Franks, and delegated to his lieutenants the easy task of subduing or extirpating the nation of the Visigoths. But the Visigoths were protected by the wise and powerful monarch of Italy. While the balance was still equal, Theodoric had perhaps delayed the march of the Ostrogoths, but their strenuous efforts successfully resisted the ambition of Clovis, and the army of the Franks and their Burgundian allies was compelled to raise the siege of Arles, with the loss, as it was said, of thirty thousand men. These vicissitudes inclined the fierce spirit of Clovis to acquiesce in an advantageous treaty of peace. The Visigoths were suffered to retain the possession of Septimania, a narrow tract of seacoast from the Rhone to the Pyrenees. But the ample province of Aquitaine, from those mountains to the Loire, was irresolvably united to the kingdom of France. After the success of the Gothic War, Clovis accepted the honors of the Roman consulship. The emperor Anastasius ambitiously bestowed on the most powerful rival of Theodoric the titles and ensigns of that eminent dignity. Yet, from some unknown cause, the name of Clovis has not been inscribed in the Fasti, either in the east or west. On the solemn day, the monarch of Gaul, placing a diadem on his head, was invested in the church of St. Martin with a purple tunic and mantle. From thence, he proceeded on horseback to the cathedral of Tours, and, as he passed through the streets, profusely scattered with his own hand a donative of gold and silver to the joyful multitude, who incessantly repeated their acclamations of Consul and Augustus. The legal or actual authority of Clovis could not receive any new accessions from the consular dignity. It was a name, a shadow, an empty pageant. And if the conqueror had been instructed to claim the ancient prerogatives of that high office, they must have expired with the period of its annual duration. But the Romans were disposed to revere, in the person of their master, that antique title which the emperors condescended to assume. The barbarian himself seemed to contract a sacred obligation to respect the majesty of the Republic, and the successors of Theodosius, by soliciting his friendship, tacitly forgave, and almost ratified, the usurpation of Gaul. Twenty-five years after the death of Clovis, this important concession was more formally declared in the treaty between his sons and the Emperor Justinian. The Ostrogoths of Italy, unable to defend their distant acquisitions, had resigned to the Franks the cities of Arles and Marseilles. Of Arles, still adorned with the seat of a Praetorian prefect, and of Marseilles, enriched by the advantages of trade and navigation. This transaction was confirmed by the imperial authority, and Justinian, 
generously yielding to the Franks the sovereignty of the countries beyond the Alps, which they already possessed, absolved the presentials from their allegiance, and established on a more lawful, though not more solid, foundation the throne of the Merovingians. After that era, they enjoyed the right of celebrating at Arles the games of the circus, and by a singular privilege, which was denied even to the Persian monarch, the gold coin impressed their name and image, obtained a legal currency in the empire. A Greek historian of that age has praised the private and public virtues of the Franks, with a partial enthusiasm that cannot be sufficiently justified by their domestic annals. He celebrates their politeness and urbanity, their regular government and orthodox religion, and boldly asserts that these barbarians could be distinguished only by their dress and language from the subjects of Rome. Perhaps the Franks already displayed the social disposition and lively graces, which in every age have disguised their vices and sometimes concealed their intrinsic merit. Perhaps Agathius and the Greeks were dazzled by the rapid progress of their arms and the splendor of their empire. Since the conquest of Burgundy, Gaul, except the Gothic provinces of Septimania, was subject in its whole extent to the sons of Clovis. They had extinguished the German kingdom of Thuringia, and their vague dominion penetrated beyond the Rhine into the heart of their native forests. The Alemanni and Bavarians, who had occupied the Roman provinces of Raetia and Noricum to the south of the Danube, confessed themselves the humble vassals of the Franks, and the feeble barrier of the Alps was incapable of resisting their ambition. When the last survivor of the sons of Clovis united the inheritance and the conquests of the Merovingians, his kingdom extended far beyond the limits of modern France. Yet modern France, such has been the progress of arts and policy, far surpasses in wealth and populousness and power the spacious yet savage realms of Clotaire or Dagobert. The Franks, or French, are the only people of Europe who can deduce a perpetual secession from the conquerors of the Western Empire. But their conquest of Gaul was followed by ten centuries of anarchy and ignorance. On the revival of learning, the students who had been formed in the schools of Athens and Rome disdained their barbarian ancestors, and a long period elapsed before the patient labor could provide the requisite materials to satisfy, or rather to excite, the curiosity of more enlightened times. At length, the eye of criticism and philosophy was directed to the antiquities of France, but even philosophers have been tainted by the contagion of prejudice and passion. The most extreme and exclusive systems of the personal servitude of the Gauls, or of their voluntary and equal alliance with the Franks, have been rashly conceived and obstinately defended, and the intemperate disputants have accused each other of conspiring against the prerogative of the crown, the dignity of the nobles, or the freedom of the people. Yet the sharp conflict has usefully exercised the adverse powers of learning and genius, and each antagonist, alternately vanquished and victorious, has extirpated some ancient errors, and established some interesting truths. An impartial stranger, instructed by their discoveries, their disputes, and even their faults, may describe, from the same original materials, the state of the Roman provincials, after Gaul had submitted to the arms and laws of the Merovingian kings. The rudest, or the most servile condition of human society, is regulated, however, by some fixed and general rules. When Tacitus surveyed the primitive simplicity of the Germans, he discovered some permanent maxims or customs of public and private life, which were preserved by faithful tradition till the introduction of the art of writing and of the Latin tongue. Before the election of the Merovingian kings, the most powerful tribe or nation of the Franks appointed four venerable chieftains to compose the Salic laws, 
and their labors were examined and approved in three successive assemblies of the people. After the baptism of Clovis, he reformed several articles that appeared incompatible with Christianity. The Salic law was again amended by his sons, and at length, under the reign of Dagobert, the code was revised and promulgated in its actual form, 120 years after the establishment of the French monarchy. Within the same period, the customs of the Ripurians were transcribed and published, and Charlemagne himself, the legislator of his age and country, had accurately studied the two national laws which still prevailed among the Franks. The same care was extended to their vassals, and the rude institutions of the Alemanni and Bavarians were diligently compiled and ratified by the supreme authority of the Merovingian kings. The Visigoths and Burgundians, whose conquests in Gaul preceded those of the Franks, showed less impatience to attain one of the principal benefits of civilized society. Yorick was the first of the Gothic princes who expressed in writing the manners and customs of his people, and the compositions of the Burgundian laws was a measure of policy rather than of justice, to alleviate the yoke and regain the affections of their Gallic subjects. Thus, by a singular coincidence, the Germans framed their artless institutions at a time when the elaborate system of Roman jurisprudence was finally consummated. In the Salic laws and the Pandex of Justinian, we may compare the first rudiments and the full maturity of civil wisdom. And whatever prejudices may be suggested in favor of barbarism, our calmer reflections will ascribe to the Romans the superior advantages, not only of science and reason, but of humanity and justice. Yet the laws of the barbarians were adapted to their wants and desires, their occupations and their capacity, and they all contributed to preserve the peace and to promote the improvements of the society for whose use they were originally established. The Merovingians, instead of imposing a uniform rule of conduct on their various subjects, permitted each people and each family of their empire freely to enjoy their domestic institutions, nor were the Romans excluded from the common benefits of this legal toleration. The children embraced the law of their parents, the wife that of her husband, the freedman that of his patron, and in all causes where the parties were of different nations, the plaintiff or accuser was obliged to follow the tribunal of the defendant, who may always plead a judicial presumption of the right or innocence. A more ample latitude was allowed if every citizen, in the presence of a judge, might declare the law under which he desired to live, and the national society to which he chose to belong. Such an indulgence would abolish the partial distinctions of victory, and the Roman provincials might patiently acquiesce in the hardships of their condition, since it depended on themselves to assume the privilege, if they dared to assert the character, of free and warlike barbarians. End of chapter 38, part 2